Part One, Chapter Fourteen of the Secret City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Secret City by Hugh Walpole. Part One, Chapter Fourteen. Next day I fell ill. I had felt unwell for several weeks, and now I woke up to a bad feverish cold, my body one vast ache, and at the same time impersonal, away from me, floating over above me, sinking under me, tied to me only by pain. I was too utterly apathetic to care. The old woman who looked after my rooms telephoned to my doctor, a stout, red-faced, jolly man, who came and laughed at me, ordered me some medicine, said that I was in a high fever, and left me. After that I was for several days caught into a world of dreams and nightmares. No one, I think, came near me, save my old woman, Marfa, and a new acquaintance of mine, the Rat. The Rat I had met some weeks before outside my house. I had been returning one evening through the dark with a heavy bag of books which I had fetched from an English friend of mine who lodged in the Millionaire. I had had a cab for most of the distance, but that had stopped on the other side of the bridge. It could not drive amongst the rubbish pebbles and spars of my island. As I staggered along with my bag, a figure had risen, as it seemed to me, out of the ground, and asked huskily whether he could help me. I had only a few steps to go, but he seized my burden and went in front of me. I submitted. I told him my door, and he entered the dark passage, climbed the rickety stairs, and entered my room. Here we were both astonished. He, when I had lighted my lamp, was staggered by the splendor and luxury of my life. I, as I looked at him, by the wildness and uncouthness of his appearance. He was as a savage from the center of Africa. Thick ragged hair and beard, a powerful body in rags, and his whole attitude to the world primeval and utterly primitive. His mouth was cruel, his eyes, as almost always with the Russian peasant, mild and kindly. I do not intend to take up much space here with an account of him, but he did, after this first meeting, in some sort attach himself to me. I never learned his name, nor where he lived. He was, I should suppose, an absolutely abominable plunderer, and pirate, and ruffian. He would appear suddenly in my room, stand by the door and talk, but talk with the ignorance, naivete, brutal simplicity of an utterly abandoned baby. Nothing mystical or beautiful about the rat. He did not disguise for me in the least that there was no crime that he had not committed. Murder, rape, arson, immorality of the most hideous, sacrilege, the basest betrayal of his best friends. He was not only savage and outlaw, he was deliberate anarchist and murderer. He had no redeeming point that I could anywhere discover. I did not in the least mind his entering my room when he pleased. I had there nothing of any value. He could take my life even, had he a mind to that. The naive abysmal depths of his depravity interested me. He formed a sort of attachment to me. He told me that he would do anything for me. 
he had a strange tact which prevented him from intruding upon me when i was occupied he was as quick as any cultured civilized cosmopolitan to see if he was not wanted he developed a certain cleanliness he told me with an air of disdainful superiority that he had been to the public baths i gave him an old suit of mine and a pair of boots he very seldom asked for anything once and again he would point to something and say that he would like to have it if i said that he could not he expressed no disappointment sometimes he stole it but he always acknowledged that he had done so if i asked him although he would lie stupendously on other occasions for no reason at all now you must bring that back i would say sternly oh no baron why you have so many things surely you will not object perhaps i will bring it and perhaps not you must certainly bring it i would say we will see he would say smiling at me in the friendliest fashion he was the only absolutely happy russian i have ever known he had no passages of despair he had been in prison he would be in prison again he had spasms of the most absolute ferocity on one occasion i thought that i should be his next victim and for a moment my fate hung i think in the balance but he changed his mind he had a real liking for me i think when he could get it he drank a kind of furniture polish the only substitute in these days for vodka this was an absolutely killing drink and i tried to prove to him that frequent indulgence in it meant an early decease that did not affect him in the least death had no horror for him although i foresaw with justice as after events proved that if he were faced with it he would be a very desperate coward he liked very much my cigarettes and i gave him these on condition that he did not spit sunflower seeds over my floor he kept his word about this he chatted incessantly and sometimes i listened and sometimes not he had no politics and was indeed comfortably ignorant of any sort of geography or party division there were for him only the rich and the poor he knew nothing about the war but he hoped he frankly told me that there would be anarchy in petrograd so that he might rob and plunder i will look after you then baron he answered me so that no one shall touch you i thanked him he was greatly amused by my russian accent although he had no interest in the fact that i was english nor did he want to hear in the least about london or any foreign town marfa my old servant was of course horrified at this acquaintanceship of mine and warned me that it would mean both my death and hers he liked to tease and frighten her but he was never rude to her and offered sometimes to help her with her work an offer that she always indignantly refused he had some children he told me but he did not know where they were he tried to respect my hospitality never bringing any friends of his with him and only once coming when he was the worse for drink on that occasion he cried and endeavored to embrace me he apologized for this the next day they would try to take him soon he supposed for a soldier but he thought that he would be able to escape he hated the police and would murder them all if he could he told me great tales of their cruelty and he cursed them most bitterly 
I pointed out to him that society must be protected, but he did not see why this need be so. It was, he thought, wrong that some people had so much and others so little. But this was as far as his social investigations penetrated. He was really distressed by my illness. Marfa told me that one day when I was delirious he cried. At the same time he pointed out to her that, if I died, certain things in my rooms would be his. He liked a silver cigarette case of mine, and my watch-chain, and a signet ring that I wore. I saw him vaguely, an uncertain shadow, in the midst of the first days of my fever. I was not, I suppose, in actual fact seriously ill, and yet I abandoned myself to my fate, allowing myself to slip, without the slightest attempt at resistance, along the easiest way, towards death, or idiocy, or paralysis, towards anything that meant the indifferent passivity of inaction. I had bad, confused dreams. The silence irritated me. I fancied to myself that the sea ought to make some sound, that it was holding itself deliberately quiescent in preparation for some event. I remember that Marfa and the doctor prevented me from rising to look from my window, that I might see why the sea was not roaring. Someone said to me in my dreams something about ice, and again and again I repeated the word to myself as though it were intensely significant. Ice! 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 Yes, that was what I wanted to know. My idea from this was that the floor upon which I rested was exceedingly thin, made only of paper, in fact, and that at any moment it might give way and precipitate me upon the ice. This terrified me. And the way that the cold blew up through the cracks in the floor was disturbing enough. I knew that my doctor thought me mad to remain in such a place. But above all, I was overwhelmed by the figure of Semyonov. He haunted me in all my dreams. His presence never left me for a single instant. I could not be sure whether he were in the room or no. But certainly he was close to me, watching me sneering at me as he had so often done before i was conscious also of petrograd of the town itself in every one of its amazingly various manifestations i saw it all laid out as though i were a great height above it the fashionable streets the nevsky and the morskaya with the carriages and the motor-cars and trams the kiosks and the bazaars the women with their baskets of apples the boys with the newspapers, the smart cinematographs, the shop in the Morskaya with the colored stones in the window, the oculist and the pastry cooks, and the hairdressers and the large English shop at the corner of the Nevsky, and Pivato's the restaurant, and close beside it the art shop, with popular postcards and books on Serov and Rubel, and the Astoria Hotel, with its shining windows, staring onto St. Isaac's Square. And I saw the Nevsky, that straight and proud street, filled with every kind of vehicle, and black masses of people, rolling like thick clouds up and down, here and there, the hum of their talk rising like mist from the snow. And there was the Kazan Cathedral, haughty and proud, and the bookshop with the French books, and complete sets of Chekhov, and Merejowski in the window, 
and the bridges and the palaces and the square before the alexander theatre and elisieff's the provision shop and all the banks and the shops with gloves and shirts all looking ill-fitting as though they were never meant to be worn and then the little dirty shops poked in between the grand ones the shop with rubber goods and the shop with an aquarium goldfish and snails and a tortoise and the shop with oranges and bananas then too there was the arcade with the theatre where they acted romance and potash and perlmutter almost as they do in london and on the other side of the street at the corner of the sadovia the bazaar with all its shops and its trembling mist of people i watched the nevsky and saw how it slipped into the neva with the red square on one side of it and st isaac's square on the other and the great station at the far end of it and about these two lines the neva and the nevsky the whole town sprawled and crept ebbed and flowed away from the splendor it stretched dirty and decrepit and untended here piles of evil flats there old wooden buildings with cobbled courts and the canals twisting and creeping up and down through it all it was all bathed as i looked down upon it in colored mist the air was purple and gold and light blue fading into the snow and ice and transforming it everywhere there was the mast of ships and the smell of the sea and rough deserted places and shadows moved behind the shadows and yet more shadows behind them so that it was all uncertain and unstable and only the river knew what it was about over the whole town semyonov and i moved together and the ice and snow silenced our steps and no one in the whole place spoke a word so that we had to lower our voices and whispered end of part one chapter fourteen